It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. It is Tuesday. It's 1 o'clock, so we're here talking to uh, two great guests today, and uh, we kind of have a great lineup for you. We have a returning uh, guest who's got some exciting updates and uh, a new one. So if this is the first time you're tuning into the show, Basically, the way it works is, you know, I have the really the uh, the privilege of, of meeting so many different inspiring people all the time, and this happens at events, this happens at conferences, this may happen through LinkedIn, wherever it may be, and so I generally will ask them a thousand questions and try to find out what makes them tick, and uh, so I really designed this show to give you that opportunity to listen on our, our conversation. Uh, maybe you might pick up something uh, that you can use, uh, you know, your job and your career at home. Um, and you can even join in on the conversation, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but really, really hope that you can get something out of this to move uh, down the road. Talent Talk, as I said, is live here every Tuesday at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, but you can also access it on our podcast on iTunes. We also can be heard on iHeartRadio uh, and a couple other syndicated uh, stations. Uh, we've amassed a great following. of over 600,000 of you came in last week and interacted with one of at least one of the podcasts. So most of you are actually getting us through iTunes and iHeart, and that's great, kind of after the fact. But a big thank you to everyone who's showing up here on a regular basis. As I mentioned, if you want to be a part of the conversation, you can do that uh, through Twitter. So uh, hopefully if uh, you have a Twitter account, you can get on there, type in your question. If you can add the at PeopleG2, that really helps. Uh, but most importantly, we need the hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, is diligently watching that hashtag right now. And as questions, comments, anything else that comes in, he lets me know and we try to work it into the show. Uh, if you're listening after the fact, you can still send your questions and interact with me and the guests uh, afterwards. Uh, we're more than happy to keep the conversation going. But speaking of my guests, let's go ahead and uh, get to that. Uh, as I said, we'll have two guests today. My first one is uh, Mike Michalowicz. He's a, uh, as I said, a returning uh, guest, and he's the founder of Profit First Professionals and also the author of several best-selling books that I'm sure we'll be talking about, and books being a kind of a favorite topic of, of this show. And then we'll have a genie, I'm going to say a shield, and we'll find out how correct or incorrectly I've said her name in, in 20 or 30 minutes. But she's the founder and CEO of uh, Devon uh, PR. So Jeannie will be joining me in the second half of the show, but let's go ahead and get to my first guest. Uh, Mike, welcome back. Chris, thanks for having me back. How you doing? Doing great, doing great. Uh, our weather is still nice here in Southern California, so we try to avoid conversations about the weather about this time of year with everyone else in the country. 
I but, appreciate uh, it. But otherwise, doing great. Fantastic. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing right now, what your company does, uh, Profit First Professionals. Just kind of give us, you know, the the rundown and the update of of everything we should know about you and what you're doing right now. Yeah, so well, I'm an author and traveling like mad. I just got back from a trip to Monterey, Mexico, then up to San Jose, down to Dallas, over to Tampa, and back to where I live right outside New York City. Uh, my company is Profit First Professionals. We are an organization of accountants and bookkeepers who believe traditional accounting and bookkeeping does not make businesses profitable. So we use a formula called the Profit First Formula where we think the first thing, we totally believe this, the first thing entrepreneurs should do after a sale happens is take their profit. It's the pay-yourself-first principle to apply it to your business. And that's what we're all about. Well, and that's a completely different way of, uh, of looking at it. I know we kind of talked about this last time, but uh, many of the listeners may be totally new to this. But really yeah. thinking about you know profit uh, first and thinking about paying yourself first are, are not sort of common ideas. Um, we think about growth. We think about employees. We think about so many other things. So you know, maybe wh- why is it so important for us to kind of think in that way? So because there was a statistic I heard – Chris, that just blew my mind away, and this part about the importance of thinking about profit. Traditionally, profit comes last. So the traditional formula is sales minus expenses equals profit. That's the traditional accounting formula. And logically, it makes 100% sense. Profit, after all, is the bottom line, or it's the year end. I mean, that's the terms we use for it. But behaviorally, the way we behave around things that come last is the important aspect. And there was a study done in part by the SBA that said 83% of businesses that are running today are surviving check by check. So it means most of the people listening that own a business are actually just surviving. If they don't get a deposit in this week, they don't have enough money to pay payroll next week uh, or whatever bills they have piled up. And so that statistic kind of blew my mind saying if profit, if the formula really is sales minus expenses equals profit, shouldn't everyone be profitable? And the answer is that formula actually, in part, restricts our profitability. It prevents it from happening because it doesn't account for our behavior. So in that formula, where profit comes last, the concept of anything coming last, it's human nature to deprioritize. Like one example I like to use is I, I was probably the worst athlete of all time in grade school. So bad that in gym class when we played kickball, the gym teacher would literally, instead of rolling the ball, like to all the other classmates of mine, would come to the home plate, put down the ball for me to kick it, and I would still strike out. And that's how bad I was. And the team captains would never want me, therefore I was picked last. If if you go to the hospital because of an illness, we don't come out of the hospital saying, this is my next and only shot, I'm now going to finally put my health last. We say I put my health first. The kid for the team you want comes first. The stuff that's priority comes first. So what I propose and all my fellow accountants and bookkeepers now in our organization say is every time there's a sale, we must prioritize profit. We must immediately extract your profit, a predetermined percentage, 5 10 or 15%, maybe 20%. But we take that money, we allocate it to profit, and then the remainder we must run our business off of. It forces automatically frugality because we have less now to work with, which is a good thing. But more importantly, it forces innovation. Now we've got to figure out how do we get the same or even better results than in the past with less money 
available. Basically, by taking your profit first, you start to reverse engineer your profitability. Well, it's a fantastic way to think about it. And uh, as you said, so many organizations are living check to check or, you know, waiting just for someone to pay their bill or whatever it may be to to see some sort of life. But it's, you know, sort of that it's a repeating process. It's like month after month. It's the same kind of, uh, you know, scenario. And you you think the next month's going to be different. There's almost like this (laughs) denial factor, right, that somehow this is going to be different next month or something's going to change and it just doesn't it gets your mindset needs to change uh and it's it's yeah it's it's the kick the ball down the road or kick the can down the road syndrome and um that by the way whenever something comes last that's always what happens so when something is deprioritized if it doesn't happen by happenstance we then say well maybe next time it will so so many entrepreneurs and and i lived this myself too for way too long at the year end, my accountant would say, oh, you know, no profit this year or break even. Or, or the worst, he'd say, oh, you had a small profit. And I'd, be, I'd ask him, well, where is it? And he would chuckle and say, oh, well, you already spent it. You don't really have a, a cash profit. You just have a book profit. And then I'd say, well, maybe next year. And we, we literally put off profit, the consideration profit, for another 12 months. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. And, and at a certain point, we start to resent our business when it never yields money into our own pockets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I wanted to kind of make sure we got into a little bit of your your background here. I know you've, you've done quite a you know, myriad of things. It sounds like you've kind of maybe settled into w- with your speaking and, and your writing and everything, but you've done everything from consulting to web optimization to data forensics. So what kind of led you to really get into this profit-first professionals mode and to kind of focus on that? Uh, and, and how does that continue to drive you kind of in your day-to-day, you know, decisions and, and work? So I uh, grew my first few businesses with the concept of make money and then do what makes you happy. So do what you maybe have a skill set at or where there is a financial opportunity and then find happiness. And in my first businesses, I built a couple of them. I, I was truly never happy, I would say. I love the entrepreneurial process. That was exciting. But I was in the tech space, and I was skilled at it, but it didn't necessarily bring happiness. It, it brought stress. I, I can't think of a day I'd come home and say, wow, I just love, love what I do. Um, but they also brought money, which becomes a trap. So they didn't bring profit, by the way. They brought money when I sold those businesses. I, I was very blessed to sell one of my companies, my first one, to private equity, my second company to a Fortune 500. And I said, okay, well, I guess now... This is the way to find your happiness. Build a company, sell it, pump and dump, and that's how you make money. But on my third iteration, I became an angel investor, and I lost all my money. I mean, I I was on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, Actually, my accountant even said you should declare bankruptcy, and in retrospect, it would have been a smart fiscal move. But my ego was too big, so I never did, uh, which I'm proud of, but also it wasn't a prudent move. But then... When I hit financial rock bottom and had to do a restart, I looked back and said, do I want to spend another 15 or 20 years or the rest of my life just trying to make money to find happiness, or should I do something that speaks to me, uh, that speaks to my happiness and make money that way? And that's what I did. I believe, Chris, that, at least for me and so many of us, I believe, is that happiness is in a purpose. And when we define what our life's purpose is, uh, I read Frank uh, Victor Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and that was a eye-opening book. 
that when we identify a purpose for ourselves, you know, self-given, God-given, however you want to define it, once you define a purpose and it speaks to you, then I think we find a vocation, a career, a business that can amplify that purpose. And so what I do now is I'm predominantly an author. I am, as you said, I'm speaking constantly. I'm writing books. I actually have a manuscript physically in my hand right now that is getting FedExed to my publisher uh, for them to uh, review tomorrow morning. And I love it. At times when I'm doing it, of course, the, the work is very hard and difficult. In the moment, it may be hard effort. But at the end of every day, I go home and I feel energized. I'm like, wow, I, ha- I had an impact again. I'm serving my purpose. And the greatest irony to it is it results in, at least from my experience, the most income and profit. Because the more I do what I love to do, the better skilled I become at it, the more others recognize it, the more it impacts them. They see my feverishness and excitement around it, and they're willing to pay for it, either by buying books or by attending my events, my speaking events, or by hiring me as a consultant, whatever it may be. But as I do more of it and have a bigger impact, people are willing to invest more in in joining that movement. And the great irony is when you live your purpose and you really stick with it, it brings happiness immediately and, I find, inevitably brings the financial, I guess, flow to continue and support that, to sustain that and support a wonderful lifestyle. So that's, that's how it's played out for me. So, uh, you know, you mentioned your manuscript, and, and maybe, maybe we'll get you to give us a sneak peek about what that's going to be. But let's, let's start with, you know, your, your first book, um, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. I think that was your first book. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, what, what was that about? You know, what would people kind of expect to get out of that if they went back and read that today? Yeah, my first book was about the concept of or the belief that we need things to be successful. I've studied lots of entrepreneurs. I've interviewed them kind of off the cuff, just meeting someone in the street kind of thing to uh, formal interviews. And I found this consistency in a belief that we need money. It takes money to make money. I mean, that's even the saying that's so popular, that you need a network of contacts to uh, build your business, that you need to have experience and resources. And I, I believed it. But then I studied the most successful entrepreneurs and studied some of the stuff that I did have success with and found that actually was the opposite. It's the lack of money that actually forces and brings about innovation. It's the lack of contacts that makes you define the best customer, find and define the best customers and build around them as opposed to try to shoehorn in a solution to the people that you know. It was the lack of experience that allowed you and encouraged you to break the rules because you didn't know the rules. So in The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, I talk about how the lack of things is actually to your advantage, and then practically, how do you leverage that? When you don't have resources, what should you do? When you don't have money, what should you do? So it's not only to your benefit. There's practical things you can do to leverage it. And I think the last time you were on the show, we you told the story about you know, taking some of those books and kind of sneaking them into the bookstore, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I absolutely loved. I, uh, I'm in a band, and we've literally thought about doing that. You know, there's not a whole lot of music stores oh. left, but, um, you know, how, how do you get your your product, your thing, in front of people that may want it and sort of create some buzz around that? And I love that kind of innovation and the story behind that. It's fantastic. Yeah, that was a funny thing. The, the, the quick summary of it for the folks who haven't heard that before is when I wrote my first book, I self-published 
the toilet paper entrepreneur. And I called the publishers, the big names, uh, Random House, Penguin, and literally got laughed at times just for the title's ridiculousness, uh, which, by the way, is an advantage. When you have something that's un- odd and unexpected, it doesn't guarantee people will buy that, but it does guarantee, at least momentarily, attention. So now that you have their attention, how do you grab it? I called these publishers, and some of them laughed at me, uh, legitimately so. And I had no platform. I wasn't established. So they said, you know, good luck. And so I said, okay, I, that, clearly i got to self-publish. But that means also I don't have distribution. It's not going to appear in the Barnes & Nobles or at your local airport or anywhere. So I actually, with friends, went to Barnes & Nobles and different stores, and we stocked the shelves with my book. And my hope was that someone, somewhere, would try to purchase the book, and then when they went to the cashier, there would be mass confusion. Like, we don't stock this book. And the customer's like, but I have the book in my hand. And the manager comes out, and the manager's like, we are so confused, and I want a ruckus to occur over my book. And that's exactly what happened. I got a call from uh, an email from a customer at one point saying, you know, I got your book, and I had these problems trying to buy it from Barnes & Nobles, and let me share the story. But the big moment was when Barnes & Nobles themselves called me and said, we have something wrong with our system. We show records of your book being processed because every book has an ISBN. It's like a social security number. So they knew they had the book. But they said, it's not our book and it's not stocked with us. We need, and I remember them saying this, we need 3,000 copies shipped to us immediately for our, our current demand. And I said, but how do I do it? And they said, well, who's the distributor you're using? I said, I don't have one. They said, really? This is so confusing. We'll get it all set up for you. By the next morning, I had a distributor. I had it on the way to Barnes & Nobles. And as Christmas approached, my book was in a marquee position in the stores to sell like crazy. And it's a fantastic story about, you know, I mean, just finding a way around, you know, obviously that wouldn't, maybe wouldn't work today with the difference in the way bookstores are. And, you know, there's so so few of them now, but uh, certainly in overcoming a huge obstacle and you didn't have this is sort of ties back into your 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 earlier point about when you don't have some you don't know something and you don't have something it will create you know innovation and and new ways to do it if you can take the time to really think about it and, and develop an action plan it, it, it's fantastic so you know then so so now you now you're rolling you you've, uh-huh. you you've snowed the, the the book giants you've got them selling your book so and that's great and now you move on to the pumpkin plan right so what was that yeah. one about so that book is about achieving rapid organic growth the adage that floats around i mentioned a little bit earlier it takes money to make money was is the belief that once you start a business for it really to spark growth is you need to invest in it significantly you need to put a lot of money into it and i believe that too but i put lots of money into my prior businesses, and I noticed that regardless if I put more money into it or less, in some cases I've had investors, that it didn't actually spark growth. It, in many cases, it had the contrary effect. So I stumbled across pumpkin farmers, uh, but not the ordinary farmers for like Halloween that just passed by, but for colossal pumpkin farmers, those guys who grow like the one-ton pumpkins, and started studying them. And, and the reason I get into that uh, so much nowadays is that I look for things that are naturally occurring in the environment around us because so much of it translates into our business. What happens in nature inevitably happens in the nature of our business. And I found that they, 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 the colossal pumpkin farmers, do a few things differently than the ordinary pumpkin farmers, and those same steps can be applied to business. Just do a few things differently, and it sparks colossal organic growth in a business. 
Well, so we've got a, an incredible list of, of books now for our, our uh, listeners to consider reading. <laughs> and, and it sounds like you, you said you have another one uh, on the way. I certainly don't want you to to spoil it for anybody or, or let any any big secrets. But is there something you can tell us about your, your current book that you're, you, you're sending off here to the publisher that, you know, some direction or some you know, sort of thing oh, you're going to be tackling oh, next? Oh, no, absolutely. So I'll answer that question by actually telling you about three books, if it's okay, because it'll make sense in a second. Sure. The book I just released is called Surge. It just hit the markets, and it's about timing the marketplace. How do you get in front of consumer demand? Basically, identifying micro-trends and getting in front of it. But as that book was launching, I got a call from my publisher and said, Profit First, that was the prior book, is there's so much demand for it that we want you to do a revised and expanded edition. Profit First I released two years ago, and just now, I literally just gave my assistant the manuscript. She is FedExing it back tomorrow. The final manuscript is going in for Profit First. And the difference between the original and the new one is this new one how it has all the stories. I've gotten calls. I literally talk about a baseball team, a minor league baseball team called the Savannah Bananas, who used Profit First to eradicate a million dollars of debt and spark growth. Another company in St. Louis it's a balloon company, you know, balloon rides, who has had stratospheric revenue growth because they took their profit first, and other stories like that. So that's what I'm just handing out, but or just turning in today. But the new book that's in the works I have never talked about before is called Streamline, and it's how do we get our businesses to run on automatic? For my readers, uh, and I have such a, I am so blessed to have just a wonderfully highly engaged readership. I get emails and calls every day, uh, letters now, sometimes cookies, which is pretty cool, <laughs> from readers. And I ask them, well, what's the challenge you're facing now? What needs to be solved for you next? And the most common response I'm getting now is I need my business to run on automatic. I need to get out of the overwhelm. I need to take all the stuff that's in my head and get it into systems so other people and other things can do this stuff. So that's the next book, actually, that's in the works. It's called Streamline. Well, it sounds, uh, I think, you know, you, you do such a great job of telling us so many of the of these stories. So I think it'll be great that you have a book coming out that, um, you know, will add so many of these stories. Because that's really a, a, such a great okay. way for people to learn and to understand the concept or, or the framework of what you want them to do is, is to tell stories. And so... Um, I think that'll be. You know, it's funny because I, I do a book club on a regular basis, and this last book we had read, everyone really enjoyed, but the biggest complaint was there wasn't enough stories, and it was oh, kind of like this, it, it hit me on the head. I was like, wow, it, the, how important that is, you know, for people that are regularly used to reading these books and interpret it. That, that stories are the way, the kind of the primary way that they prefer, you know, to, to digest some of these concepts as opposed to, you know, hearing some dry regurgitation of a study um, or, or data points or whatever it may be, but the story uh, is really, you know, seems to be the main way people really want to digest. So it sounds like you're on the right track there. I was uh, just recently, uh, this past weekend, so I mean just a couple of days ago, on Sunday I was down at an author's event. It was a, a gathering just for networking effect, uh, for networking purposes, and it was many authors that I, I truly admire from afar but have never met face-to-face. And some of the authors got up and just spoke about what, how to have impact. And the exact same thing you're saying, Chris, is storytelling is critical. And I think the, the reason behind it is 
that stories are magnetic. It draws pictures in our mind. And when we read dry content, the statistics and the information is impactful intellectually, but it doesn't have that stickiness. A good story matched with that information now brings that information and makes it permanently registered in your mind. And that's why I think stories are so important. And is, do you have time to, to read uh, books that aren't your own these days? I mean, do you have one that oh, are, yeah. are, that if they if they don't go check out your book, uh, or maybe when they're <laughs> done with your books, I should say, what what other books should they be thinking about that maybe has been on your mind recently? So what I'm reading right now is a book called Persuasion. It's by Robert Saldini. He wrote a famous book called Influence. If you haven't read that one, that's a must read. This is the, the 20 year waited. We waited 20 years for this follow up book called Persuasion. And it's all about how we, humanity, makes decisions and the influence we have over others. Uh, the danger is, of course, it can be used for manipulation, but it also can be used for influence. And influence is where you move people to a new place that maybe is uncomfortable, but it's to their benefit. Manipulation, of course, is where you move people uncomfortably to something that's to their detriment. So it's just a fascinating study around that. And then anything that Malcolm Gladwell re- writes, it's a must-read. I think I've read every one of his books three times over. David and Goliath is his most recent, which now is probably a year and a half or two years old. But that's a must-read, too. Well, listen, I-, I, could do, I could go for hours, if you want, about other <laughs> books to read, too. I-, I just consume them constantly. I- I'm a ravenous reader of business books. Well, uh, as a reminder to all of our listeners, we will have a blog recap on our uh, on our website, on peopleg2.com, and we will list all of these different books all that uh, Mike's been talking about, his books and the other ones he mentioned uh, there. We'll have links uh, in case you didn't have a pen uh, uh, ready or uh, couldn't get it written down. But, uh, you know, really appreciate you being back on the show with us and sharing all this information with us. Uh, what's the pe- best way for people to learn more about uh, Profit First Professionals or any other things that you're doing? Sure. So if you want to learn about our organization, we, we do have accountants and bookkeepers who can help you achieve better profitability in your business. You know, my belief is you need an accountant or bookkeeper anyway. Why not have one that specializes in driving profit? And, of course, if you're an accountant or bookkeeper, we'd love to talk with you. Maybe it's a fit for you to deliver to your clients. The website is ProfitFirstProfessionals.com. And then if you want all my books and, and uh, I, I blog, I, I'm a huge podcaster myself now, go to MikeMichalowitz.com. But here's the shortcut. I, I still struggle spelling my last name, so I don't expect anyone else to be able to spell it. <laughs> Go to uh, Mike Motorbike. That was my nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. So go to MikeMotorbike.com, and that will get you to my site, and you can get all this stuff. You know, download it for free. See, that's another great, another great thing you've done to get around the fact that nobody can say your name, and they sure as hell can't <laughs> spell it. So right. just give up, and you just change Mike Motorbike. That's fantastic. I love it. So. Uh, <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I always appreciate your uh, your insight and certainly suggest all of our listeners check out your book and keep an eye out for all the new ones that have been coming out. Um, we hope to uh, stay connected with you, and, and best of luck. That sounds wonderful. Thank you, my brother. I really appreciate this. No problem. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break with Jeannie Akili. 
Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Hey, welcome back uh, to the Talent Talk Radio Show with my well, my second guest on here in just a moment, uh, Jean Akili. Uh, it's taken me about six attempts. I think I've finally gotten her name yes. correct. So uh, she's the founder and CEO of Devon uh, PR. Don't forget, uh, as a quick reminder, you can always catch up with us on talenttalkradio.com. Find us on the podcast app with iTunes on your uh, Apple devices. And, of course, with any device that can get you on the Internet, you can go to iHeartRadio.com and type in Talent Talk. We're there uh, to be heard anytime you want. Um, but let's go ahead and get to our, my next guest, Jean. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me as a guest today. Oh, you're very welcome, and I'm glad we finally got finally got your name done correctly. But let, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and uh, your organization and what you're doing over there at uh, Devon uh, PR. Absolutely. Well, first of all, you made me laugh about the name. Um, I acquired the last name Achille through marriage. And, uh, you know, I, I actually really like it because people remember it. And also it starts with A. So I'm at the top of the alphabet now there uh, whenever there's a list. So it's all good. It's all good. But uh, but we do get a lot of variations on the theme, as you can imagine. Um, and thanks for asking me about Devin. Obviously, as, a, as a, an entrepreneur, it's uh, very close to my heart. I started the company 
22 years ago, I'd been on the client side of the technology business in various marketing and sales roles, uh, also ran product management for a Fortune 500, and decided that PR was one badly broken process. So I started an agency in 1994, and uh, it's been a wild ride ever since then. And you certainly have had a, quite a story behind, you know, kind of starting that company. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial experience with the company and, you know, how you were able to kind of get it up and running and make it sustainable and, and all, what was that sort of beginning process look like for you? You know, despite uh, the best practices that we espouse to our clients, I did not start with a business plan. I started with uh, frustration, and that is I had really hit the proverbial glass ceiling. I uh, knew that I needed to uh, have some sort of pivot in my career and always had kind of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial blood coursing through my veins. So I socialized the idea of starting a firm with uh, several uh, trusted colleagues, and by the next day, I had three customers. And we have essentially been customers funded since the start. Um, I'm certainly not going to pretend that the first year in business was a wildly successful one, but uh, by year two, we were profitable, and um, you know, it's it's been a terrific journey. There are always a lot of ups and downs as an entrepreneur, especially when you are self-funded, um, and we're serving, of course, customers that range from venture-backed startups through Fortune 500 entities. And, and maybe what are some of the important or, you know, unique factors about kind of what, what makes your company tick? You know, your culture, your process, you know, what is this, if, if someone was a fly on the wall, let's say, at your, at your agency, you know, what would they sort of get from that makes you guys tick? What makes you special? Yeah, two things, Chris. Um, first of all, we are professional communicators. So we understand the value of telling a story cleanly crisply and frequently and i find that a lot of issues in the workplace in particular go back to poor communications whether it's poor workforce communications whether it's poor communications with your clients so we are all about um communicating clearly and and uh and setting expectations clearly one of the other things, though, that we look at is what we call own it. So when we are looking for talent to join our organization, we're looking for people who are responsible and accountable and are really comfortable stepping up no matter how how much fun or how challenging an opportunity might be. And that's really, really important to us in terms of the talent we onboard to Devon. And, and so how do you then... You know, you have that as a base, and maybe that was something that really came from you or came from a few of your original people. But then as an agency or company grows and your client base grows, it gets to be tough to keep that up. And so how do you ensure that that culture is maintained, that that sort of fundamental baseline of that, you know, good storytelling, being professional communicators, all that you, that you kind of just now explained, you know, how do you make sure that it, it it's kept up, right, that it's top of the list, uh, and that the other sort of day-to-day normal things don't kind of creep in and take over. So, uh, you know, we're, we're a smaller firm, so we're not managing thousands and thousands of employees. And when you are a small professional services firm, every person's voice counts, 
And I think having a flat organization where we have a certain degree of peer influence and peer management taking place within Devon, uh, where everyone understands they are that what they have to say is just as important as the next person. So in other words, our model is not one of hierarchy. It is one of collaboration and almost um, a family-like environment where everyone gets to weigh in. And therefore, you have certain peer influence taking place within the team where uh, they have, in fact, a daily huddle that I do not participate in, for example. Uh, And during this daily huddle, they collaborate amongst themselves and talk through the various projects, brainstorm uh, how to address different client concerns or, in our case, many times concerns that we have with different journalists or different influencers. And I find that uh, really empowering that that peer influence has been key to our culture. And, and then I know you guys are uh, kind of at, at times have been kind of on the forefront or the cusp of, of changes and new things. And, and it kind of goes back to you being one of the first to really uh, dive into social media from a PR uh, firm's perspective. Uh, can you share a little bit about how you know that in particular kind of impacted your business and and are there other things that you're looking at that to, uh, you know that might be the next kind of thing to be thinking about? Well, probably what I'm going to say about social media isn't going to make me terribly popular with social media firms. We looked when 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 the advent of social media was was on the horizon. We looked at it as yet another communications channel. So we don't hold it off to the side. We actually integrate it into all of our public relations programs. Uh, there really is no way that you can silo it. And um, a- as a result... We've had a lot of success uh, for our clients, whether we're running, for example, their executive social media programs. In some cases, we are tweeting on their behalf. We're writing content for busy executives who simply don't have time to do things like that, or we're blogging for them. But it's it's yet another communications vehicle, uh, in another, another uh, tool in our toolkit of public relations. And have you seen that? Um, evolve or change as far as the level of importance? I mean, has that, has it, has that tool become a little sharper? Uh, has it become a little maybe <laughs> a little more like a hammer? I mean, you know, it, it certainly seemed like it, it was exciting but f- fairly ineffective when it really kind of began. I from our own perspective, then it became a really sharp instrument really effective and now it's sort of gone back to being a little bit duller again because of the volume of people the way in which uh, different channels try to monetize things and so it seems to be ever-changing i'm just wondering if you had sort of the same experience or something different you know chris um and and this is exactly what i tell our clients if you're going to use a tool such as let's say twitter to merely publish content then that's exactly what you're doing. You're publishing content. The value in these tools is to interact. And the way you interact is to actually be reading what other people are tweeting and and react to it, comment on it, engage them. And that's how relationships are built. Relationships are the foundation of any effective communications program. Without them, you're simply 
you know, throwing things out into the ether. And I fear that a lot of the noise that we see in social channels is as a result of that, where people say, oh, you know, I can check that box. I put it on LinkedIn or I put it on Twitter. But there's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's kind of like your inbox, your email inbox. After a while, everything starts to look the same, and it's hard to prioritize what you should really be paying attention to first. So um, we encourage people to, to look beyond traditional social media publishing and start to really get into touch with the influencers who are going to make a difference to their business well i think you hit the nail on the head and then the real kind of question is is you know can a company uh do they have the time to do it can they dedicate the resources to do that because if you're you're right if you're not interacting if you're not digesting if you're only sort of tossing things into this giant ocean right you're not ever putting your hook in there to try to pull anything out of it it's uh, it's I wouldn't say useless, but it's you're <laughs> you're only doing one thing. You're only publishing, right? And so it, it can be tough. I think it's great advice to be really encouraging people to to be interacting and uh, trying to uh, find other great t- content that they like that they can you know comment on or tweet or retweet whatever it may be uh, to get some sort of a conversation going. It's it's, it's really great. Has has social media in any way, do you think, changed, um, you know, how companies or how your company, you know, kind of deals with their own talent management needs and and, uh, and development from that perspective? You know, ironically, in our, in our case, it's really not been terribly relevant to our uh, recruitment efforts. So I know that we represent a number of organizations where social media is critical to their talent acquisition initiatives. In our case, we are looking for a senior practitioner who already has a certain amount of business experience that already has a certain network. So I would say the way we would use social media is perhaps to check out that person's credibility, but not necessarily to have our initial engagement with that individual. So, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's uh, we all go to LinkedIn and look at each other's profiles. I think it's really helpful in that regard. Would it make sense for someone at Devon to sit on LinkedIn and go through um, uh, profiles and then try to recruit one of those people? Probably not. When you're in PR, you really need to be able to network in more of a high-touch manner and really be able to speak with that person, observe that person interacting, see what kind of critical thinking skills that person has. And um, some of that is just not going to come through in social media channels. So uh, a lot of times, you know, there's that famous New Yorker cartoon also on the Internet, uh, you know, everybody uh, with the two dogs talking on, on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. Um there's a lot of personas that have been created uh, for social media, so there's an authenticity issue also as we sure. look at it. Sure. Well, I know you kind of looking at your background. You've received multiple awards throughout the years um, for being a leading uh, woman entrepreneur and CEO. So maybe you could talk to a little bit about what you think your leadership style is like and how that puts you in this kind of a top category of, of, of leaders overall and specifically women leaders um, and maybe how it's helped you, um, you know, within your own organization uh, in kind of getting that recognition. 
the recognition is is you know the, the way these awards are constructed chris the recognition comes through to me but quite frankly if i didn't have a great team there would be no award so it, it is truly all about the team and the effort that they put forth i think awards are are great morale boosters um, they, they also signify certain milestones that your company has, has met along the way. Uh, initially, I was very resistant to uh, having our firm go after awards for ourselves because really we want to focus on, on our customers. But uh, we have found that, you know, sharing the love, our customers get pretty excited about those awards as well. You've asked about my leadership style, though, and I think something that that you learn over time, and certainly 22 years uh, at the helm of Devon, I've learned, uh, not to react to everything immediately. And uh, I see a lot of people putting forth a lot of energy, reacting, reacting, reacting to every single thing as if their hair is on fire and there's the crisis du jour. And quite frankly, at the speed at which business operates now, the crisis of the moment, Um, there's a lot to be said for pressing the pause button, gathering information, looking at something holistically, and then reacting so that you've got a really cogent strategy to whatever it is, whatever problem is you're trying to solve or whatever you're trying to respond to. Um, there's a lot of flailing about out there, and I think that's a, that's a leadership skill that you develop uh, perhaps with experience. Well, and it's great advice um, for people to, to think about that, Sometimes what your organization needs is not for you to to pounce, not for you to immediately react, but for you to take that time to go back and reflect, to to ponder solutions, to talk internally, have those conversations, and then make a concerted effort to go forward. And, and that can be really effective and allow the best you know choice or answer or whatever it may be or voice to kind of come forward. And uh, I think you're totally right. Not a lot of organizations. Uh, necessarily do that consistently. So it's, it's a good thing for us all to remember. Well, I, one of the things that we talked a lot about with my first guest today was was books. And it's something that comes up very consistently on this show because we love talking about books. Um, and it seems to be something that our listeners are really in tune to, always wanting to know what they should be reading next, what's the next you know book they should be thinking about. Um, so I want to make sure we ask you this before we go. Uh, and that is, is there a book that you're reading right now that you are recently read that you could tell us about? So, Chris, I'm, I'm going to break tradition here and tell you that I'm hopeless about completing any book. I probably <laughs> have a dozen books that I'm, you know, in varying stages of reading because I travel a great deal. And I've tried, you know, the books on Kindle and I've tried small books and large books. And I tend to to gravitate toward more consumable amounts of content. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big reader of timely content, you know, reading the New York Times every day, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I certainly read magazines where I think the writing is exemplary. So a good example of that would be Vanity Fair. Uh, you know, I like to stay current on things like fashion. It's good to have some sort of personal life, so I like to pick up Vogue once in a while. But, uh, I, you know, I stand in front of Hudson News at the airport, and I look at all the wonderful books, and I go, wow, I'd, I'd love to buy all of them. And I know that I would just stack them up someplace until my next vacation. Now, having said that, when I do get to read... I almost always read something about leadership, and um, I really, really enjoy learning more about potential role models. So a lot of my reading uh, has to do with um, whether it's past presidents 
you know, business leaders. So, so not so much reading these as a how-to type of read, but just to learn more about that person's life and their journey, and uh, and all of the the things that they contended with. It's it's always a good level setter to know that you're not living in isolation. That uh, that everyone has challenges that they've overcome, and ev- everyone has certain um, skills that are innate, but certain skills that they learn as well. Yeah, and I think you're you're. Not in the minority in your challenge sometimes to to get to these books or to finish the books and you know that I, I've been there that you know in the airport and you go wow look at all these you know incredible books you wish you could read them all I had to kind of do a little bit of a life hack myself to try to start to at least get one done per month because I was having that same kind of experience you were with the you know stacking up for me it was stacking up on my dresser my wife would say are you ever going to read any of these because we got to Get, get, do something about your dresser. It's getting to be out of hand. You know, there's these books everywhere. And um, so I had to create two book clubs and start listening to them on, on audio. Um, and so with audio, I get to it. And with the book clubs, I have to show up and moderate the group. So I have to finish the book. That was kind of my trick to actually get it done. But I think all of those different, you know, the books you talked about, the different periodicals, those are all fantastic uh, accesses to new ideas, new information, and I'm really glad that you shared that with us and, and um, everyone who's listening. Well, um, I think our, we're almost out of time here. I want to make sure uh, we ask two really important questions. Uh, the first is, you talked a, about a lot of different things today. If there was maybe one takeaway that you really hope that someone would have heard or remembered or jotted down, uh, what would that be? Well, it goes directly to our line of business, and that is communicate and when I leave your listeners with that, what I mean is even if you, the next thing you do after listening to the show today is sit in front of your email and compose an email, reread it before you send it. Take out all the weasel words, sharpen it up so it actually says what you mean. Um, put a call to action in there so the recipient understands what they're supposed to do when they receive this and read this. Uh, I find that so many of our challenges in the workplace, in our personal lives, certainly in the current political uh, environment, goes back to communication, you know, who said what, how they said it, um, were they clear, does it require some sort of clarification. So I'd like to leave your listeners with, uh, with a mantra, and that is communicate. Well, that's a great one. And how can people uh, learn more about you or get a hold of you or you know, uh, find out more about your firm if they're interested in learning more or possibly working with you? Uh, we love to hear from folks. Uh, we have a website at DevonPR. That's D-E-V-O-N-P-R dot com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and that's at Gene Achille, which is J-E-A-N-N-E-A-C-H-I-L-L-E. And, uh, of course, email is terrific as well, and that's Gene, J-E-A-N-N-E, at DevonPR.com. Well, Gene, thank you so much for being our guest here today on the show. I uh, really appreciate uh, all of your insights and, and wisdom that you, you share with everyone. Hopefully, we can have you come back at some point and give us an update. Chris, I appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you today. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. Hopefully, you gained something that you can use in your own career. Uh, next week, uh, my guests will include Ann Fulton, CEO of Fuel50, and Ray Zinn, the CEO of uh, Microll. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 